All right, hello and welcome everyone to another episode of Waiting to be Signed, a special interview episode. We're sitting today with Chetel Gole. That's my best in- attempt. <laughs> I always, I'm always on the hook to try to pronounce other people's names on the show. I think I did an okay job. Uh, we're here to talk about his upcoming release on verse called Monument. It's a verse solos, but of course we're gonna get into a lot of your history with art. I think we're gonna talk about archetype. I think that's unavoidable. And Trinity's here as well. Trinity, how's it going? Hey there, so good to have you on and to have this conversation. Yeah, hi, thanks for having me. Chetel, can you help us out on the pronunciation here for the listeners too? Because like like we were talking about before, everyone tends to say your name differently. It's got some nuance to it. And then we'll do our best for the rest of the episode. Sure, yeah. So so my name is Chetil uh, Goli. Yeah, it's a very Norwegian name, not uh, not very common outside of Norway. It's great. And now it's on the record. Everyone knows. There's no excuses moving forward. At least a few hundred people know. Yes, at least a few hundred people <laughs> will know. We're really excited to have you on. You know, you're an artist who's been around for a long time prior to NFTs, making stuff open source. And obviously, you're super well known for being an early art block security artist with Archetype. We're excited for your upcoming verse release. But before we get into all of that, can you please help to introduce yourself to our audience by telling us your background in art and coding? and how you came to discover the blockchain and uh, use NFTs to release your work. I uh, started my education in graphic design, actually. After high school, I went to Singapore to study graphic design. I only went there for a year, but uh, I managed to get processing recommended to me at that point already. This was back in 2011, I think, yeah. It didn't really click with me then because this was before I knew how to code, but uh, I really enjoyed the aesthetic of many artists using processing, like uh, Casey Reese is one obvious uh, artist there. And uh, as I said, I only went there for a year and then I started with cognitive science in Norway that later evolved into computer science for me. And at that point, I kind of still had processing in the back of my mind, and uh, which is Java-based. And uh, I did my first courses in Java, uh, the programming language, when I was in university in Norway. It was a great tool for me to use as a learning tool, really. So when I learned some concepts in class, I could use those concepts in processing and make something visual out of it to kind of understand it better. If I were to learn about for loops, I could make something that created a whole bunch of particles, for instance, and, and use that in a, in a more visual way, which was very helpful for me. The road from there to creating more fun stuff was short for me, introducing randomness, introducing weird things that kind of broke the original algorithm, but still made for a complex expression. I usually say that I, I have done generative art as for as long as I have done coding, really, because it's uh, it has gone hand in hand for me. Mostly as a hobby, though, uh, not until two years ago when I actually started doing this uh, full time. But that is kind of jumping over some steps, I guess. But yeah, that is kind of the, the start of how I um, got into art and programming. Yeah. I'm going to steal an old question that Trinity used to ask, but were you really, were you artistic as a kid? You said that ever since you started coding, you were making art, making generative art. Does that stem from like an art practice that you had when you were younger or something that you pursued in parallel in university? Well, I don't know art, but I was creative. I, I like to draw. I, I have filled all my notebooks with drawings and, uh, and stuff like that. And I enjoyed doing design and uh, using Photoshop to do things. 
at that point, it was always clear to me that I would I wanted to do something design related after high school. But uh, I quickly turned around on that though. But uh, but yeah, I, I I had always had this creative part of me. I think yeah. We'll put that clearly. And you were interested in art as a kid. I was not big into drawing or coloring or Photoshop. So you know, I think that many artists assume that that's kind of the standard or the go-to because it's such like a core and lived experience. And I think Annika right. Meyer recently put on Twitter that it seems to be something that all generative artists or everybody in this space used to have like books upon books of just sketches. And so that yeah, seems to yeah. be a, a really strong background. We have a common origin story. Well, how did you end up discovering the blockchain then and NFTs? And I know a lot of the work that you released that's up on your website prior to doing NFTs, just kind of like open source tools and things for, you know, for open algorithms for people to explore. So what brought you over to crypto and NFTs and how did you come to start releasing your work that way? Yeah, it's not entirely clear to me how, how this all started for me. Uh, but um, I started quite early to post my work on Twitter and Instagram and got a small following pretty quickly. At some point, I think someone approached me and kind of introduced or pitched to me the, the idea of NFTs. And um, I didn't really make that much out of it at that point. I got sent some links where I kind of read something about the contract types and, uh, and I tried to buy a crypto kitty and stuff like that. It was at this point, I had probably 2017, I think. And I also actually got some offers to create some of these generative pieces where I could uh, supply the code and, and they would kind of frame it and, uh, and port it into a, an NFT generating thing that could... Yeah, it was actually a precursor to the paper model algorithm that they were interested in, in making as part of their platform. That were, I don't think the platform became to anything. Uh, and I also, I think I had misunderstand the concept a bit because I, I, I knew that this algorithm, technically speaking, could produce duplicates. And I thought that would be a very big problem if that would come to be that, that, that these two different hashes would create the same, uh, same. So I didn't really want to give that, that algorithm away from me at that point without fixing that problem. So it never came to be anything, but I, that kind of made NFTs part of my, my mind. And yeah, a bit later at the end of 2018, I think I, uh, I got approached again by the people at uh, Known Origin. And they asked if I wanted to upload and, and mint some NFTs for them on their platform. So uh, yeah, I, I tried that. I, I was thinking, why not? I, I didn't really do anything commercial at that point. I had made some posters given to some friends and uh, some people were interested in buying them. But that was kind of the, the level at that point. And so I thought, sure, let's put up some one-of-ones and some five-of-fives, I think, uh, was uh, the addition size in the first ones. I think at that point, it was only Art Gnome that was buying anything. I think he was the only buyer at that point, but that was enough. He was buying all my stuff and I felt good about that. Uh, I don't think I released that much afterwards. I, I only like sporadically, I, I, I uploaded some more to Known Origin and later Super Rare. But then uh, Kate Voss approached me a bit later, or really Art Gnome, Jason Bailey for Kate Voss, and then asked if I wanted to be part of an exhibition that she was hosting about cellular automatas. Uh, so I, I used my algorithm called Crosshatch Automata and made some new NFTs and minted them on SuperRare. And uh, this got quite some attention at that point. So I guess at that point I had sort of a name within NFTs, but it wasn't really until 
art blocks and the archetype algo that that really made my name i guess i would love to just to take a moment to just kind of discuss the evolution of your style i assume that the first works that you put up on known origin if i'm looking at this correctly were the curvescape series yeah which is definitely a lot more it's very different let's just put it that way from what you've put on, uh, elsewhere and kind of where your style has evolved so perhaps it would be great to kind of talk about Curvescape, some of that earlier work that you were doing, and then how you stylistically evolved to have this really bold, very geometric style that you've kind of carried with you ever since. The cuboids. <laughs> yeah. So at the time when I was releasing or minting my first NFTs, I was doing anything, everything within generative art. I felt like I was exploring different algorithms every time and uh, making uh, Lindermeyer systems and trying uh, diffusion reaction and uh, particle systems and uh, whatnot. So it was an exploratory phase for me, for sure. But uh, yeah, I'd made everything. And I was really, uh, at that point, the Curvescape was probably one of the, the pieces I was most happy with. And I felt like did kind of stand the test that it would look great even if you didn't really know the the story behind it because that was quite important for me that you shouldn't really need to know that this is generated by the computer in order to find it fascinating and to find it interesting and to being intrigued by the visuals so that was kind of the pieces i i went for initially to release and the other part so th these two things stood out in a in a way it was two extremities in a way it was the very organic curvescape where you don't even see any lines until you zoom out and you zoom in and you see particles and then on the way other side i had these rule-based systems that had a very simple visualization basically only triangles or only squares that uh, were placed using very simple rules in a grid system so this polarization almost has has stayed with me really although i have made much more work within the as you said the the cuboid part of the landscape in the, the last couple of years but i still have on my bucket list to explore different venues and to to do different things it's um we can come back to this later but what i am most interested in exploring has more to do with the structure behind and not the visualization itself necessarily going back to like the 2021 interview that you did with art gnome which i think was probably just before archetype came out or just around it a lot of the way you work you're creating tools and experimenting with tools and just building kind of like a code library right that then you can explore parameters so is that kind of what you're getting at there like conceptually it's more about expressing the system of the code or maybe, maybe this is a really roundabout way of asking like do you feel like the output is the art or the code is the art the system is the art right when it comes to generative art it sounds like you're very systems and like code oriented even though the outputs are obviously great it's a good question. I don't really know. I guess it's kind of a definition question, but um, I have this loose philosophy in that I try to make structural complexity through visual clarity. So I spend a lot of time making these complex structures. And then my goal when I, when I do the actual visualization part of it is to convey this structure in the best possible way. And that usually doesn't call for a very complex visualization because I feel that that is more that clutters the structure that I want to show or to get through to people. So that is why I have landed on this style probably of very 
flat colors and hard lines and not really a lot of distortion or particle effects or, or all of these things because I feel like those are really hiding the stuff I want to, to show. And the things I want to show goes all the way back to the structure. But when you ask what is the art, is it the, is it the code or is it the piece itself? I still feel like the piece itself is the art. It would have been nothing without the visualization, but uh, it's kind of where I put my focus is on the structure. And all the focus on the displaying part is about showing the structure in the clearest and best possible way. Let's maybe get into, since we're talking about structure, why don't we get into archetype, which is probably the piece that you're best known for, it being an early art block security release. I think we're coming up on the third anniversary of that pretty soon. Uh, it came out in like March or April 2021. So I don't know if you have anything special planned. Do we do anniversaries for generative art? I'm not sure. But that's, that's a pretty big accomplishment to see that that piece still goes through the sales feed. You know, multiple times a week, people are still crazy about collecting that series. I'm wondering if you can give us some of the story of like how that project first came to be. How did it end up at Artblocks? as a curated release. And then also it was like really quickly followed by Paper Armada, right? I think Paper Armada only came out like a week or, or not a week, like a month or six weeks later. So what was the thinking at the time back then in those early days of art blocks where I feel like now they would never have an artist release like so close together. And also that series was like 2000 something pieces, right? The Paper Armada. So like the, yeah, 3, the quantity there, yeah, 3000. So can you give us a little bit of um, a backstory of that, just that whole process with art blocks and how those projects came out? Yeah, uh, so Archetypes is based on a partitioning algorithm that I made way back. And uh, I, I had some motivation for doing that, but it quickly turned into a lot of other projects, which uh, explored these cuboid-based structures that I have done ever since. I think it was my latest iteration at that time of the Archetypes, that algorithm that I was really happy with. I had made some tweaks to my earlier piece that I called Stock, that was on Super Air. Uh, made some tweaks to how the colors and how the shadows worked, and I felt really happy about it. And I spent more time with the more repetitive patterns, repetitive versions of the code, and I felt like that was a really striking visual. So I, I posted a set of those on, on Twitter at that point, and... Um, I think it was Jeff Davis, the co-creator of Artblocks that, uh, or co-founder of Artblocks that just commented there and just, hey, have you checked out Artblocks? Uh, give us a call and I will um, put you on the queue for curated. And uh, I checked it out and I uh, spent some time trying to understand what was going on there because this was very novel at the time. But I really, really uh, clicked with the structure of it all where you buy a piece and the piece will mint or will generate at uh, the real time and you will see a, a new and uh, unexplored part of the code uh, generated. Something I really, really enjoyed uh, clicking around and, and playing with there. So I wanted to join and I, I quickly really edited my code so that it would fit the art blocks, the whole NFT ordeal. And uh, pretty soon after, I don't remember exactly the timings here, but pretty soon after I, I became curated on, on art blocks and uh, it went amazing. I, I had never really imagined that it would go as uh, crazy as it would. And uh, with all the secondary sales that happened immediately after, it was a very, a very absurd uh, experience to see this, uh, especially since all my experience with NFTs earlier than that was very 
it was one by one, right? So it wasn't 600 pieces at once suddenly being on the market and uh, available for everyone. So very unique. So after that, yeah, it's, it's funny when you mention it because it's, it sounds so absurd now, right? That you would uh, release a, a project so soon after the first one. And uh, yeah, it would probably have gotten a lot of questions today if you did something similar. And, uh, but at that point, it was the thing was that you became curated and you could have a drop. And as soon as you became curated, you were able to, I think in theory, you could create as many what was called playground projects as you basically wanted. So it wasn't curated, but it was this other track that you could freely. And this was getting restricted pretty soon after. But what people were doing at that point was really to, well, make a playground set at that point. Now I'm unsure if it's called playground. I think it was called playground. It was at the time, but they've, yeah, yeah. it's no longer. Yeah, they, they renamed just, it. and they Yeah, everything's been rebranded on the site now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that was really what people were doing. And at that point, Generative artists really didn't have this outlet, right? So they had had a lot of projects that they really wanted to uh, make NFTs out of. So why not just uh, do it again, you know, and get it out there? And uh, I had this paper Armada set that it was almost a coincidence that it became the archetypes being curated and not the paper models because I really had that project. I was working on that in parallel, really, and I had a lot of great ideas for that set as well. But yeah, it became archetypes, and then I released paper models right after. And who knew, right? Like we didn't have all of these um, standards or uh, these unspoken rules about uh, what size or what price or what kind of intervals. So, so yeah, why not try uh, with a higher number? I kind of wanted it to become something similar to Snowfro's Chromie Squiggles, which didn't really need to immediately mint out it could just be there and i could gift them to someone if i wanted or it could just be there so people had something to mint in a way sort of the same philosophy as with the chromie squiggles at the time and that was kind of the case because when i released it which was yeah one or two months after archetypes it was sort of a small dip in the market so it didn't really mint out immediately it was minting out pretty slowly really but then there was this community thing where, where one user really wanted a very certain paper armada with, this, with some certain traits. He was promising a, a fidenza, I think, for anyone that minted paper armada of that, with that trait. So that really skyrocketed the minting suddenly, and uh, it got minted all over overnight, I think. So that was the story of, uh, of the paper armadas at the time. That is a crazy story. And also 3,000 or close to 3,000 minting out relatively overnight is so fast. Like even in, I think, full bull market mode, that seems so fast. It's crazy. But were these series that you did with Artblocks, was it your first real foray into what we call now, thank you, Tyler Hobbs, traditional long form, where you needed to be able to support an algorithm that could be 1,000 random outputs or 3,000 random outputs? What was it like kind of transitioning from your more of a curated release pattern to a generator? It wasn't that foreign to me because although I had only released one of ones earlier or just small editions, I'd still made these generators that lived on my on my website where you could uh, click a button and it would generate a new piece. So I had I was already kind of in the mindset of creating algorithms that would always generate something interesting and not have 90% duds in a way. So it wasn't that foreign to me, but this really makes it into more of a structure 
thing where you really want all the pieces to be okay at least or hopefully good that is the main challenge i think that wasn't the hard part i felt like with sets like the archetype i did some cheats in a way in the code to kind of avoid the most basic uh, patterns but seeing as how everything went the most basic pieces are the most loved ones for some people so so maybe just let there be complex pieces let there be simple pieces and i think people there will be something for everyone anyway i have to follow up and ask do you know if that trade was ever made for fidenza did that <laughs> it was it was wow. uh, actually it happened quite early so I imagine that that would kind of stop the craze, but uh, it still it still happened. I think it was kind of a bandwagon at that point. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> it was a train that wasn't going to stop anyways. Yeah. Talking about making long form generative, I'm actually trying to think between archetype and I know you made the Decagon piece for Deca, which didn't really have, I mean, that's kind of like an open edition almost, right? Because anyone who joints deca gets one of those but for your long form pieces that you made then and up till now how do you think about traits how do you think about rarity and scarcity like it kind of sounds like you feel like everything should be on a like a bell curve the way that you described it like let there be a little bit of everything but do you get really intentional with that when you go in and design the traits on things because I'm, I'm thinking like to archetype right there were some of the rare ones that showed the full cube and they feel like such outliers, right? They actually don't, to me, they actually don't even feel like they're part of that same collection, though when, when you read the description and understand, it's actually like, yeah, that's what every archetype is, just whether or not you're seeing the full cube or not. So yeah, I don't know if you can kind of talk about designing a piece from an artistic standpoint versus designing a piece from a, like how collectors will see it and understand it and like interact with the features. I think I have changed my philosophy a bit with traits. Uh, you mentioned decas, they or decagons. They don't have really traits at all. They don't even have very many internal or hidden traits that I d- just don't show. It's uh, it's much more uniform, and that was the idea with that. It, it is a special piece though, because it's the idea initially there was that this was sort of a membership card almost to deca dot art. So, so that was why I didn't really want that to be. I didn't want there to be rare ones or common ones because this is a membership card and everyone should have one that is that is just as good as all the other ones. But then obviously some emergence happens there too. So so people find their traits in a way. They find stuff that looks symmetric or they find some colors they like. So, so this kind of happens organically almost. Again, when it came to archetype, it was in a world where we didn't we didn't have any rules. We didn't have we didn't know what traits were supposed to be, and we still probably don't. But uh, I wanted to create some variance to the set. Uh, you might say that creating the cubes or and the corners was a very drastic way of creating variance. In a way, a very artificial way of doing it because it's it's more of a scene change, and the the traits also called the scenes. But it's a very effective thing for the NFT market because if you want to make something very rare in the NFT market, you need to make something, a trade very rare, but you also need to make that trade very visible so that everyone knows that this thing has its trait. If it's a very hidden one, if it's sort of another trait with the direction of the shadow or something like that, which you don't really see unless you study it, it wouldn't have become a very successful rare trait, you know. So it needed to be something visually discernible. I think it was good, though. It, the cubes are a very interesting piece in itself. It should have maybe been a set in itself because, it, as you say, it's a very 
different visual. But I enjoy that it became 10 cubes and and they really have gotten a life of their own after they got minted. So yeah, I, I enjoy the decision now. Uh, but but as you say, it's a, it's this um, duality almost. Like, would I have done that if this was a huge set created for a gallery or something like that. Uh, but yeah, I think why not, right? Why not have some some rare pieces uh, in a way or some, some outliers when you create a large piece for a gallery? The way I really find traits to be very useful and also rarity to be very useful is that some traits don't really deserve a lot of pieces because it doesn't create the variety some other traits might. So that is a way of kind of balancing this because it's uh, so a good example is probably if you have a color palette, which is only black and white. Well, maybe you don't want that many pieces that are black and white because it doesn't really offer the same variety that a palette of six colors would. So then you make this trait rarer, not because you want that trait to be rare and to be sought after and higher price, but just because you don't really want there to be that many pieces with that color. And a more interesting example for the archetypes is the order slash chaos um, trait, which is really, I think, shows a very unique aspect of generative art. And that is that, so I had, it was the chaotic pieces, it was the order pieces, and then it was this balanced pieces that was in the middle. And there are mostly balanced pieces and not as many order and chaos. And it is really two different reasons why the two are less common. And that is because order pieces is obviously also less variety in because they are very simple patterns. So you would more quickly exhaust all the, all the small and, and, and uh, simple patterns than you would more complex things. But on the other hand, you have the, the chaotic pieces, and those become very uniform very quickly. So they are technically very unique. You won't find two that are similar because there's so much going on. But if you zoom out a bit, you will struggle to, to see the difference between two very chaotic pieces, almost like looking at noise. Two pieces of noise are almost never equal, but you will never be able to discern one from the other. So that is why the balance was the actual trait that that I wanted the most of, because this balances that trait uh, better. When you're looking at many of them, it becomes the most interesting versus looking at like a thousand ordered ones in a row. You know, talking about traits, and you mentioned colors already, one of the things that you're really well known for are these striking color palettes. It's something that you've really developed and have shared with people out there. Yeah, I think there's a lot to explore there. You know, one, how do you develop your colors? Two, you've mentioned before that we're in this kind of weird beginning ecosystem of, you know, how do you size things? How do you price things? How do you make quote unquote business decisions? How do you figure out like what you're going to put out there to share or first, you know, kind of keep to yourself? Can you talk about the generation of those palettes and why like you're just committing to them and like making them more like public so to speak i've always had this philosophy to make my code public uh, and that is because when i when i first started this myself i i relied a lot on existing code that people had put out downloading their code and trying to do my own things with it and and see where it gets me just to really learn the ropes and uh I thought the the least I could do was to give back in that way and and uh, to open source it myself. When it comes to the um, Chromatome library, 
it started probably with me just sampling colors from illustrations and posters and design pieces just to have some colors to use just so I didn't need to reinvent the wheel every time I, I made a generative piece. I just had this library that I could import into my, my project and just to have something, you know, and it evolved into something a bit more complex where I had this structure of colors and backgrounds and stroke colors and um, things like that. And it's become harder and harder for me to use this palette the way I used to use it. And that I think that is a testament to me using colors in a different way now. It is not as easy for me now just to insert colors or insert a palette into my work because I, I want to integrate it more tightly to the structure itself, which makes just a flat palette harder to work with. So I usually want to connect some colors together and some other colors together and then they would all together become a palette in a way and uh, and sort of like how the structure itself is complex the structure of the colors i use also become a bit more complex maybe i don't want to use this border color with this fill color and i never want to use this color if this is the background or something like that so a lot of rules and, and stuff like that which I, I tend to use which is also why why this chromatone palette is open source but rarely updated a lot anymore is that um, is that i'm lazy uh, and the long answer was the, the stuff I, I gave here that it's uh, i've kind of outgrown the current version of it i should probably have taken a week or taken a couple of days at least to restructure it and make it more flexible so that I could actually use it as a tool again. But as of now, I have I put more thought into the color. So it's not that much of a time saver for me anymore because I would still tweak the colors from the Chromatone palette in order for it to fit my work anyway. So Your upcoming release on Verse called Monument, in some of the writing that you've done about that, you mentioned that you're using a very restrictive palette or just one palette, right? One set of colors on this piece. Can you talk a little bit about, first of all, that decision and where does it kind of play into the influences that piece? You know, we've seen references to high-rise buildings, brutalist architecture. I guess in general, can you just kind of give us the story of like the concepting of this piece and how you arrived at these this version of the algorithm and these compositions? Taking the colors first, I think this is a continuation of what I spoke about, about the traits. That when I create a set now, I want to create something that is has a more uniform and cohesive expression. Because where did that come from initially, right? The idea that when we release a set, it has to have a bunch of different color palettes. Color is so important to our work, right? So when, when you give it a bunch of different color palettes, you, you are creating something that is very varied definitely but it's also harder to see the set as a whole because usually color palettes don't really mix that well together so when you see all the pieces together it will be a very messy experience so in some works it works great but for this one i I felt like i would go the simpler route and and find a palette i liked and instead vary the amount of usage so some pieces will be entirely colorless and there's almost like this gradient or the spectrum of how much color or how many blocks will be colorized. And I thought that was a good alternative to having 10 palettes. The piece itself really has its base in the in the archetype, the same algorithm as the archetypes, although this is a new algorithm, but it was kind of a rework. I've wanted that for a long time to really rewrite the whole archetype code for it to work better in three dimensions 
so that we can potentially even make 3D models of these, which is possible now. So the archetype algorithm was much more, it was made exactly for the purpose of it for looking good at that angle. This one is much more based in a 3D space. So it, uh, yeah, it's a lot more possibilities and a lot more flexibility. So you have seen how many times I can use the same, or I use the base algorithm. I, I feel like my, my work has really have this iterative quality to it that I, I really try to iterate on my, my earlier pieces and I, I try to evolve and uh, I'm, I'm not really trying to hide that a lot of my different sets are, are based on the same algorithm, but they present new ideas and new applications. So in that way, an iteration of earlier pieces and uh, with the brutalist architecture and things like that, this was really the, the initial inspiration for me to create the uh, archetype algorithm. It was, it was this as what, that was what I was trying to make initially. I wanted to make these tall rise buildings with a lot of repetitive elements that were flawed in a way, much like you can see images of brutalist buildings now, which are never perfectly repetitive because they are structures that are lived in by people. So there might be variations because of that. Like you can see curtains in the windows or, or air conditioners and, and things like that. And uh, it kind of breaks the monotony in a way that I found very interesting. So I tried to kind of recreate this in this piece uh, with color, which is the only part of the piece that is very, very random, randomly placed. And yeah, I think it uh, has some of the same qualities as the archetype, that it has some pieces that are very orderly, where you see very clearly the, the repetition going, which is probably the pieces that are most similar to these brutalist architectural uh, buildings. And then you have more chaotic ones that are clearly more recognizable as generative pieces. I'm going to pop into our uh, Discord chat, just um, my old view from where I used to live. I lived across the street from a crazy brutalist hospital building, which just took 60s brutalism, 19th century church. And then there was also like a terrible 90s, you know, new construction, like brick building, kind of all <laughs> mishmashed into one like really ugly campus. I'll put the brutalist part. It's pretty cool. <laughs> That's neither here nor there. I just love brutalism. Yeah. I would love to also kind of talk about some of the other types of evolution because you're not just moving further into like the 3D space and the complexities of that space. Even though you can see some of like the roots and archetype, there are a lot of other really big differences that kind of come out within Monument itself. And I'm thinking specifically around like the line work. You know, it's no longer clean, straight lines that move continuously from one one end of a block to the other end of the block. You're starting to see these line breaks. You're starting to see lines that might not just be black, but sometimes in other parts, they'll be a broken up white and that sort of thing. That seems like a large extension or a large evolution of the algorithm as well. Is there any reason behind including some of these less... I don't want to call it clean elements because, I mean, they're still clean, straight lines, but they're just less straightforward, perhaps, is a better way to put it. It certainly breaks up some of the monotony, and uh, that was part of the reason. One other source of, of inspiration for me is the Linclair uh, style of, of, of comics, and uh, well, especially in comics with uh, Ergé and uh, all of these uh, great uh, comic book authors or drawers. So this is kind of a nod to that, where, where you have these broken up lines to, to indicate something that is not uh, a clear edge. I use these broken up lines internally on the shape. So the, the, the line outside the box is always full or, or whole. 
and the lines internally on the block can be broken up. Additionally, as you said, some boxes don't have outlines at all, and uh, that is more of the of the breaking up. I think I th- I thought uh, it almost felt like it was the colors kind of overflowing the box, which I thought was a good aesthetic, and I I, I liked that. So that was kind of the um, the reasoning behind it, and. Uh, you might say that it kind of goes against the thing I said earlier to to make it very clear, the structure very clear through the visuals. But I think it is also important to have some sort of variety uh, in there. That is kind of the, the, the graphic design part of it, I feel like. And I know that the release details have not been announced yet other than the date, but have you coalesced around, is this going to be long form? Is this going to be artist curated? Is this going to be collector curated? I mean, Verse offers so many different ways to release a project like this, you know, without holding you to anything, because you know, there's a couple times we've had people come on and then they say they're going to release it one way and they change it. So this is not going to be a, a matter of record, but more of an open-ended discussion of did you consider any and all of those, and what do you think are kind of the pros and cons of say releasing a project like this as long form versus releasing it as you know some form of curated and and if you do have a you know a way that you're leaning, I'd love to hear it. <laughs> it will uh, probably be long form. I miss doing a long-form piece. My uh, latest project has been curated, which is good in itself. I uh, I like that too. I like to generate hundreds of pieces and flipping through them and finding the the things I like uh, about them and uh, and releasing those in a very focused set. But this was made with long-form in mind the whole time, and that makes it into something else. That makes it a bit more restrictive in in what you dare to do. If this was a curated piece, I would probably have more color palettes and kind of make those color palettes emphasize the structure that you were looking at, that that exact piece. But here, I know that this will be hundreds of pieces, 300 probably, that you will be able to look at together. And uh, that is also a concern, you know, so... You want it to be varied enough so that you don't feel like you are looking at 300 identical pieces, but you want there to be some sort of consistency so that the art piece works as a set and as an individual piece. That is a hard balance to strike sometimes, I think, because uh, it's hard to make pieces uh, look good in a set, really. If you are the simplest piece, you will be you will look even simpler together with all your complex pieces around you and uh, vice versa so it, it kind of intensify your trait in a way looking forward to that i love i mean that both of us i think we've come to embrace curated which has kind of become more of the meta during this bear market slump but our roots are in the long form just you get what you get you mint and you just got to trust that the algorithm is going to deliver something that you like so it's like opening christmas presents or yeah, yeah. jelly beans what flavor is this? No idea, but I'm excited. Very excited. Okay, so we talked a lot about Archetype. You've obviously had a lot of success th- since then. You're now a full-time artist for the last two years, I think you said, right? So considering that you, a lot of your work has been iterative and you're continuing to play with the things that you're really well known for, the cuboids, the color palettes that you've developed, what do you think has been kind of the secret to staying successful in Web3 for so long. And, you know, so long, two years in Web3 is a really long time. In in life and in an art career, it's not, right? But how much intentionality, I guess, do you have kind of behind thinking about your career, thinking about which things you're going to do? 
yes, it's the right time to do some one-on-one projects. Like, yes, it's the right time to do a long form. Kind of just riff on that, I think. <laughs> I think, and what advice might you have for other artists who maybe are out there kind of struggling and thinking about how do I keep this going for myself? Yeah, I'm probably not a good person to ask, really. I, uh, I have spent very little time worrying about that, to be honest. I should have probably worried more about it. Maybe I would have been even more successful then. <laughs> but um, no, I was blessed with being early in the market, I think, being at the right place at the right time, uh, which has given me a lot of things for free. But no, I think it's about staying relevant, about engaging with your community. You could always take this to the extreme, right? And um, especially in the Web3 uh, communities of creating rewards and creating uh, whitelists and airdrops and, uh, and all of these things. But I, when I started doing this full time, I really wanted to focus on my art and to have my whole head within that space and not really creating this online persona. I found that I find that very uh, exhausting and uh but it's probably the, the thing that works the best. But uh, yeah, each to their own, uh, absolutely. But uh, uh, for me, I have been trying to keep my headspace around the art completely. And uh, hopefully that will be, be enough in a way. I hope people don't feel betrayed that they have uh, invested in me as an artist and then they feel like they haven't gotten things back. Fair enough. <laughs> yeah, I know that's a tough question. But I think a natural follow-up then would be to ask, like, so do you have people around you that you outsource some of that worry to? I don't know if you work with any gallerists or if you work with kind of any, there's been this emergence of people who like do a manager kind of role for artists. And if not, I mean, then how do you think about different platforms to release on? How do you think about even chains? I don't know if you follow a lot of the discussion that's been going on lately, but with Ethereum, it seems like the marketplace has become a little bit more difficult. And so a lot of artists are starting to look at things like Solana, look at things like Bitcoin. Do you regard any of that at all? Do you ever get like interested in the idea of experimenting and going to an open platform like FX Hash or trying out something totally wild like Bitcoin? Like, Does any of that appeal to you as an artist or are you really just focused solely on getting a piece done and then putting it wherever it seems best in that point in time? I try to follow the discourse just to see what is what is out there currently and uh, to be able to catch some uh, technological aspects that will benefit me or that will kind of slot well into to some ideas that I have personally. Other than that, though, I don't really... I feel like it's it's usually kind of following the next big thing in a way and I don't think I would want to jump on a bandwagon just because it's the new thing in a way. So I would need some more good reasons for changing my my way of distributing my art, so to say. It's always interesting, though, to see what new things pop up. But uh, I'm getting older and I'm getting more skeptical about these things. <laughs> it's been two years now and suddenly I'm an old guy that uh, will only publish on one chain. No. In principle, I am open to new chains, to new platforms and everything, and uh, I would love to see what they have to offer. But uh, I also recognize that this is a market where it is usually enough to be early uh, in order to be the kind of the valuable. But uh, I also kind of want to not be in that world (laughs) where that is the only thing that is needed. So I try to kind of stay put until there is a good reason for me to, to switch. And I think you're, as you said, in that early group really kind of establishing at the forefront of 
this most modern phase of generative art. You were mentioning earlier that with your early drops and art blocks and a lot of the volume, obviously back then, like royalties were enforced and mm -hmm. now royalties are not a thing. So even though we might still see archetypes going through the sales feed, you're not necessarily benefiting from that anymore. So how do you kind of feel about that erosion of royalties that have taken place primarily on ETH, right? I, and has that ever caused you to think about another chain or has it just changed the way that you think about releasing work now where, you know what, like that's it. I'm just going to take whatever primary I can get. And if I get a few royalties, great, but I'm not going to plan on it. It was obviously a bit disheartening at the start when we we, we realized that suddenly was not any more royalties. It was more of a, a market as a donation of sorts, which in practice turned it into a into nothing for us. But I think now that I've gotten it a bit more on a distance, I think it's uh, it was something that quickly appeared and then quickly disappeared. So uh, let's not dwell on that, I guess. It is certainly something that could motivate me to go on another chain if that is makes it uh, more enforced. This is more of a question about the community and the culture, I feel like. There is something about me that, or something about it that feels wrong about enforcing it too. It's uh, It should be something that people do because they love the work and, and almost like buying the artist a coffee if, if they liked it. And yeah, maybe the flippers uh, wouldn't uh, need to, to pay this sum because uh, they don't have the same relation to the to the artist. But yeah, it is it is what it is. I, I will not be in the forefront of fighting for it uh, to get back in some forced way. It seems like you're in that middle ground between the traditional or legacy art world that moves slowly and then the hyper-fast world of Web3. Obviously, you're very much in the Web3 world but do you have any thoughts around kind of like that speed and evolution at which things move? Uh, you've already said that you don't necessarily need to be at the forefront, but what is your take on the constantly changing ecosystems, the constantly changing culture, you know, where we go, go from bear market to bull market and within like the context of really this art world. And do you really consider yourself a blockchain artist where like, a digital artist or a code-based artist? Like, where would you put yourself in relation to the Web3 ecosystem? I tend to call myself a generative artist. And um, the reason I don't call myself a crypto artist or a uh, NFT artist is I think I am not the kind of artist that really makes use of the chain as much as many other does. So it wouldn't make sense for me to identify using those names. Not because I wouldn't want to give out that information, but it's just that generative art for me is more descriptive of, of what I do. And uh, and then I can say in, a, in the next sentence that my, my work is available as NFTs. Generative is a word that has suddenly has become uh, associated with AI, obviously, also. So now I think I have to call myself like generative artist, not AI or something like that. <laughs> and yeah, with the, with the speed of everything, it's... Uh, it's both a stress factor for me because it's a market that is constantly changing and with both technically and both and also as you say with the, the bears and the bulls it's hard to kind of keep track of if you if you don't actively engage with it on the other side it's a, it's an exciting thing to be a part of and to be in the center of it always presents itself with possibilities that you could choose to go after or choose to ignore and uh 
I think in that way, it's much more entertaining than being in a more traditional art market. It's definitely entertaining. <laughs> That's for sure. <laughs> yeah. uh, we've been chronicling it for two years now, and every week we're entertained. I think we should start moving into rapid fire, wrap up the episode here. I wanted to point out, by the way, third anniversary of Archetype, three-dimensional monument. So maybe this is kind of like the celebration of the, <laughs> the third anniversary of the project. Yeah, in the rapid fires, we just want to ask you some really quick questions to get to know you better and then end the episode. So one that we often ask, or we always ask at this point is, who would you like to hear us interview on the show? Who would be an interesting guest? In the generative art scene? Could be. That would be easiest for us because we <laughs> can probably <laughs> find them. <laughs> right, right. Uh, I don't have a complete... Uh overview of who you have uh, have interviewed though but uh i guess i have to uh spend this moment to shout out some of the big ones like matt Delorier and uh norwegian ones like uh anders hoff is a great uh, in convergent on twitter he was a great inspiration for me earlier when i started doing generative art and he has some amazing pieces that uh released on fx hash actually a couple of years ago i think great artist yeah. But he stopped putting stuff on FX hash because he started working with like a different language that wasn't web compatible. I remember asking him about it on Twitter. Yeah. Yeah. And uh he would just show all these amazing whips on his Twitter and then they would never materialize into any <laughs> he's really just making it for the fun of making it. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. yeah. And uh a lot of people are saying that uh about uh, <laughs> what they do, but he actually means it because he he makes it in a language that is impossible to to get yeah. onto anywhere. So yeah. He would be a really interesting one to talk to. And maybe we could convince him to come back to <laughs> doing it long yeah, form yeah, yeah. again. Slumming it in JavaScript. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. I will definitely give you some of these uh, headline comments also. So. Oh, okay. That's great. We <laughs> always love those spicy interviews. All right, Trinity, do you want to throw out another rapid fire there? The question that I was going to ask, hopefully it's not just the same response as before, but who are some of your favorite generative artists whose work do you absolutely love? There's a lot of a lot of names. I think the biggest ones are the are also the most well known to people. I think the people that has been most formative for me, as I mentioned earlier, Casey Reese, which really is probably the person that got me into generative art at all. And then like the next layer would be Tyler Hobbs and Matt Delorier, I think, which are have always been great on creating tutorials and creating tools and just being great inspiration for the community long way before art blocks and uh, and everything so so those are are definitely uh two who else they also usually have very have names that are hard to pronounce <laughs> that's our specialty i should probably not say anything about that though but uh <laughs> you can send them to yeah. us offline yeah that's okay <laughs> yeah sure so one one last one then we obviously know that Monument is coming up on Verse, and let's get the date out there real quick. It is February 20th, so everyone should be on the lookout for that. But what else do you think you have coming up this year? You know, you, you mentioned earlier that there's some other things that you're working on, maybe not necessarily in the cuboid realm, or do you think you're going to stick with that theme a little bit longer? Like, is there anything that you can kind of preview for us, get us excited about what might we expect from you? Uh, yeah, I, I, I cannot say a lot of specifics, probably. I have a lot of things in work, always. Most of them don't really turn into anything, but uh, I feel like I have. I am in a good place right now creating cool things. So 
I will probably try to depart a bit from the cuboid uh, scene right now. I, I felt like for years now that it has been almost this bottomless uh, source of uh, of inspiration for me. But uh, there's also a lot of other things. And uh, I um, draw a lot of inspiration from, from different things right now. So uh, like emergent behavior from uh, elements in the world and everything. I feel like there's a lot of untapped potential um, trying to create generative behavior in new ways that aren't always just visual and uh yeah i don't know where it will will end up but uh, i have a lot of ideas around that so we will see all right well well, i guess we'll just have to follow you on twitter and and look out for works in progress and stuff like that as the year progresses yeah trinity you feel good Are are we wrapped i feel great this has been another another wonderful interview episode of waiting to be signed thank you Kettle and thank you, Will. Thank you for having me. Looking forward yeah. to everything that's coming out with Monument and everything else that you might do. All right. Bye, everyone. Thanks. Bye. <laughs>